Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are happy and excited to have Dr. Monica Morrow on the podcast today. Dr. Morrow is a surgical oncologist and chief of the breast service at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She's an active researcher, editor of multiple textbooks on breast disease, and is widely considered one of the top breast surgeons in the world. Welcome, Dr. Morrow, and thank you for joining us on Behind the Knife. Thanks very much. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, your training, and what led you to this career? Sure. Uh, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. And when I was a junior in high school, my father learned about the Penn State Jefferson five-year cooperative medical program, which was a way of getting both your undergraduate and MD degree in five years, and suggested that while I was applying to college, I should apply to that program. Being a junior in college, I didn't really know much of anything about anything at that point in time, so it sounded like a good idea, and I applied to it and was subsequently accepted. So I spent a 12-month year at Penn State beginning in June after I graduated from high school through the end of the next summer, uh, going to undergraduate school and taking the pre-med requirements. And then I started medical school at Jefferson. And the summer between my first and second year of medical school, I went back to Penn State and did the additional credits I needed to get my degree. So I had an accelerated early career. Fortunately, not a heck of a lot of what you learn in undergraduate school is necessary for medical school. So that wasn't a problem. If I had known how much I liked college, I might not have done it. But by then, it was uh, already water under the bridge. So after I finished uh, medical school, I went to the University of Vermont to do a surgical residency. And I spent five years there. And then I did a two-year surgical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And then did you stay at Sloan Kettering ever since? No. (laughs) I uh, finished my fellowship, and I had enjoyed living in Manhattan. And so I took a job at a place that was about as different from Memorial Sloan Kettering as anything could be, and that was working at uh, Kings County Downstate in Brooklyn. So I spent the first five years of my life as a faculty person there, And during that time period, I did all kinds of surgical oncology. And then I took a job at the University of Chicago. And during that time, I shifted to a much more selective career where I did a lot of breast and a few other things. And about that point, I decided that it was really impossible with the explosion of knowledge in surgical oncology to be an expert in everything. So I decided I was better suited to know a lot about one thing and decided to focus on breast. So I moved from the University of Chicago to Northwestern, where I stayed for many years, spent a couple years as the chair of the Department of Surgery at the Fox Chase Cancer Center. And then 10 years ago, I came back to Memorial as uh, the chief of the breast service. It's interesting how your career evolved and from doing, you know, primary surgical oncology to just breast. And I think we're seeing more and more of that throughout the country. Uh, we, you know, we come from a, a program, a, a general surgery program with an army program that, you know, we have kind of some true general surgeons that do a little bit of everything still. And, you know, most of them still do breast cancer surgery. Do you, do you see that being a something that will continue in the future, general surgeons taking care of breast cancer or will it move to primarily just, you know, breast surgeons? No, I don't think that primarily breast surgeons and surgical oncologists are ever going to take care of breast cancer exclusively because of the volume of breast cancer that we see in this country. You know, we turn out out of breast fellowship training programs, something like uh, 50 trainees a year, maybe a few more now as the number of programs have grown. But that certainly is not enough to serve all of the patients in the United States. So I think that it is important for general surgeons to know how to take care of breast cancer. And I think a big, big problem is that unlike 
many parts of surgery. There's actually an exceedingly large body of level one evidence in breast cancer about how to take care of people. And since breast cancer is generally looked down upon in the vast majority of general surgery residencies as something you do when you're a PGY1 or 2 because it's not complex surgery. Nobody dies on the operating table. You can't walk out of the operating room with blood on your shoes bragging about how great you just were. So it's not something people want to do in their senior years of training. And therefore, they really don't know anything about it. And that isn't very good for the quality of breast cancer care in this country. Just along those lines, then, if we get to a point where general surgeons are paying more attention to the level one evidence, but we we are shifting gears to a more subspecialized surgical uh, field, how would you delineate what needs to be referred to a breast specialist as opposed to something a general surgeon could take care of? Or does that need to be figured out? Well, I think part of the issue is that Breast cancer management in today's world is truly a multidisciplinary endeavor. And for example, if you don't have the capability of doing MRI-guided biopsies, then you can't be dealing with a population of high-risk women who require screening with MRI. If you don't have ready access to medical oncologists who understand the standards for neoadjuvant chemotherapy and what best practices are, you can be the best surgeon in the world, but you're not going to be delivering high-quality breast cancer care. So some of it is a matter of the team that is available to you in the place where you're practicing. Some of it is a matter of the operation. For example, nipple sparing mastectomy. Nipple sparing mastectomy is an operation that every high volume breast surgeon will tell you is technically much more challenging to do well than a conventional mastectomy or a skin sparing mastectomy. And we have started to see a remarkable number of patients who are having nipple sparing mastectomies in the community by low volume surgeons who have half their breast left there, including half their cancer sometime. So they're presenting within a year of initial treatment with early local failure or what is actually really persistent disease. So that's an operation that probably shouldn't be done by the occasional breast surgeon. And the last time I saw statistics on this, the average number of breast cancers treated annually by a general surgeon in the United States was something like 14, which is really not very many. Well, I think that's a good introduction to our dissection of the day. And today, specifically, we'd like to dive deeper into breast disease and breast cancer, and obviously touching on the controversial issues. I mean, I feel like I'm in my last year of surgical training here, and I feel like throughout my time in surgical training, things have changed so much in breast cancer. And now there's a, a push for the less is more approach to breast cancer. Can you kind of describe the less is more, less and more approach and, and what led to this change? Sure. I think one of the greatest advances in breast cancer has been leveraging the success of multimodality therapy to allow us to do less morbid surgery. And the understanding of the biology of breast cancer that underpins that. So the first change to less is more was getting away from the idea of that initially radical mastectomy and then modified radical mastectomy cured more breast cancer than lumpectomy and radiation. And of course, there have now been six prospective randomized trials with follow-up over 20 years that have demonstrated that that's not true. Now, the argument that a mastectomy is quote-unquote a safer operation than breast conservation because there is a lower risk of local recurrence was true 30 years ago, but it's not true today because as imaging techniques have improved, as our understanding of what constitutes an adequate lumpectomy, how to process the pathology specimen, 
that sort of thing has improved, local recurrence rates have steadily declined. So the local recurrences we see today after lumpectomy are not due to inadequate debulking of cancer cells. They're due to biologically aggressive disease. And not surprisingly, they occur at the same rate after lumpectomy as after mastectomy. So that was really the first big paradigm shift that occurred thanks to the work of Dr. Bernard Fisher and the NSABP in this country and Umberto Veronese in Milan. The second big change to less is more was the availability of sentinel node biopsy to stage the axilla, which stopped us taking out all the axillary nodes in women just to find out whether they had cancer cells in them. And although we now all accept that as standard practice, back when that was first suggested, it caused everybody to get in a great lather as if this was a reversion to the Halsteadian concepts of breast cancer management, which it, of course, wasn't. And then the next big change was the ACOSOG Z11 study led by Armando Giuliano, which asked the question, in the era when women undergoing breast-conserving surgery are going to receive systemic therapy, which is exceedingly effective, and receive radiotherapy to their breast, which treats some of the axilla, do we really need to take all the axillary nodes out in women with cancer cells in only one or two sentinel nodes? And of course, that study proved there was no survival advantage to axillary dissection. There was no difference in the risk of local control, but side effects were much, much less frequent in the sentinel node biopsy only arm. So that was another major paradigm shift. And now where we are in less is more is taking women with more advanced stages of disease, for example, who have large tumors, which would require mastectomy if you operated on them up front and shrinking those tumors to allow lumpectomy. And we know that's safe, again, from prospective randomized trials that have shown that, or downstaging their axillary nodes and avoiding axillary dissection. So the less is more comes from the fact that virtually all women with breast cancer in today's world get some form of systemic therapy. And that systemic therapy has become increasingly effective at killing microscopic cancer cells. And that means the need to do big surgery to eradicate subclinical cancer burden has decreased. That was a fantastic review of kind of the less is more and where we got to where we are. I know there's been recently some um, debate and challenges to the thought of the management of DCIS and how this is treated. Uh, at Sloan Kettering, how are you guys approaching just the, the patient that is found to have uh, DCIS? So saying DCIS is sort of like saying car. You could have a Ford Fiesta or you could have a Lamborghini and all DCIS is not created equal. So one of the paradoxes of DCIS is that although it is a highly favorable lesion that is 97, 98% curable with surgery alone, it's often more extensive in the breast than much more aggressive invasive cancers. But the debate in DCIS stems from the fact that as the use of screening mammography has increased, the detection rate of DCIS has increased. And so one would expect if DCIS was an obligate precursor of invasive breast cancer, that as we detected and treated more DCIS, we would see a decrease in the incidence of invasive breast cancer. And that really has not happened in parallel. So that has led some people to speculate that there is indolent DCIS that really doesn't require any treatment similar to what we see in prostate cancer in men. The problem with that approach is that if you have a core needle biopsy that shows DCIS, even if that DCIS is small in size, and non-high grade, there is a 20% chance that there is invasive cancer, which is present right then and there. So if you don't remove the DCIS, you don't know that that invasive cancer is there, and you therefore don't treat it in a timely fashion. 
So that's part of the problem. And the other problem is that if you look at clinical trials that have been done of the very same small, low-grade DCIS that people are suggesting maybe doesn't require any treatment except observation and then treatment if it grows, if you cut it out and you don't radiate it, somewhere around 10 to 15% of those women will experience an in-breast recurrence of either invasive cancer or more DCIS within the first 12 years after diagnosis. And although invasive recurrence potentially translates to mortality and DCIS recurrence does not, patients really don't like recurrence. If you ask them what their major goal in treatment is, It's to avoid the recurrence of cancer, which is emotionally traumatic. So basically, you get down to asking the philosophical question, those patients with the smallest DCIS can be treated with a lumpectomy, which is a 45-minute outpatient operation with very few sequelae and a good cosmetic outcome. Is it really worth avoiding that operation to run a 20% risk that you're missing cancer? And if you do avoid that operation, how often are you going to image the patient? How many biopsies are going to need? They're going to need. And is that actually cost-effective care? So there are three trials going on around the world that are addressing that question. Uh, Happily, some of them include quality of life components, which I think will be very important in this decision. But right now, the standard of care for DCIS, except in women with severe life-threatening comorbidities, remains surgical excision, and the extent of that surgical excision is based on the extent of DCIS in the breast and sometimes requires mastectomy. So when you're uh, talking about lumpectomy or partial mastectomy, however we term it, do you typically do wire-guided or seed-localized, or are there any studies showing superiority of one over the other? So seed localization is what we switched to at Memorial about six or eight years ago. Uh, The reason for that was primarily for patient convenience and also for convenience of the flow of our operating room, since we do somewhere around 15 to 20 image-guided lumpectomies a day. But We looked at our experience six months after we started doing seeds and compared it to our experience in the preceding six months with wires, which we had been doing for many, many years, and found no difference in the rate of negative margins, no difference in the likelihood of excising the target. And at that point in time, it took about three minutes longer with the seeds, but that was only because of the probe we were using at that particular time. There has been a randomized study that looked at that question, which also showed no difference in outcomes between the two procedures. So I think the advantage of seeds are that the patient doesn't have to come to the hospital early on the day of surgery when they're NPO, when they're anxious, sit in the radiology department. If they faint in the machine, which is not an infrequent occurrence, that delays everybody's surgery schedule for the day. And then they have to come up to the operating room and sit around and wait with a wire sticking out of their breast, which most of them don't like very much anyway. So seeds can be put in in advance of the day of the procedure. And then you can do these cases first thing in the morning if that's when you want to do them. So that's why we like seeds. But uh, cancer outcomes aren't any different. And I think in the end, what's important is can you get to the target? Now, the other advantage of seeds, especially for people who don't do this a lot, is unlike wires where you have to look at the films, figure out where the wire goes into the breast and where the target is and not make your incision at the entry point of the wire, which could be quite far away from what you're trying to take out. With the seed, you can find the hottest spot and put your incision right over it, which is technically easier for most people to do. And that was actually my follow-up question that with the wire, it seems that um, we may have a tendency to be removing more normal breast tissue than maybe necessary. Um, Have you 
found that to be a difference between the seed and the wire, or is that negligible? Well, in our study, there was no difference, but we are a group of high-volume breast surgeons with a group of high-volume radiologists who were very good at putting the wire on the target. So I think that people who start cutting as soon as the wire goes into the skin will cut out a lot of extra breast tissue that they don't need to cut out. You can always tell the classic bad wire localized lumpectomy by looking at a specimen x-ray that shows the specimen, which is exceedingly wide at the anterior surface, narrows down, and then the cancer is hanging off the bottom with no margin around it. I guess the next thing I want to dive into with, I guess, your opinion is uh, looking at different types of the guidelines for screening mammography. And that is a point of confusion, I think, for a lot of residents out there, is that which guidelines should we follow and uh, when is screening actually no longer necessary? Can you kind of walk us through the what maybe your facility uses and what your program uses? So the confusion about screening mammography basically boils down to, in part, how you weigh the risks and benefits of mammography and whether or not you believe that there is some dramatic difference in the incidence of breast cancer between the ages of 49 and 50. Because basically all guidelines agree that you should screen at 50. Breast cancer is an age-related disease. So if, for example, you look at breast cancer under the age of 50 compared to all older women, it's much less frequent. But if you look at breast cancer in women in their 40s compared to breast cancer in women in their 50s, it's not that much different. As you get older, it becomes much more frequent. So that's problem number one, it's a continuous variable, basically. Incidence is like a continuous variable. Problem number two is that organizations like the United States Preventive Health Services Task Force, who are the people who really do not endorse mammography for women in their 40s, equate the negative of being called back for a six-month follow-up mammogram in essence, as being equivalent to a life saved from the early detection of breast cancer, which most of us who practice clinically would say are two very different things. In addition, they consider the only benefit of screening to be survival when detection of cancers, when they're a smaller size, also increases the likelihood that you can undergo a lumpectomy and decreases the likelihood that you may, for example, need chemotherapy or get your axillary lymph nodes taken out. So having said all that, because women who are in their 40s are more likely to have dense breasts than their older counterparts, having comparison mammography from year to year is particularly useful in that age group. We screen women or we endorse screening women annually beginning at age 40. What you do with the upper limits of life um, is less based on data than on common sense because none of the screening trials uh, included women who were over the age of 70. One of my favorite consults of all time is getting someone brought into my clinic on a stretcher who is non-communicative who had a screening mammogram that shows calcifications and has DCIS and they're being brought in for a treatment consult. So the decision about when to stop mammography should depend on biologic age, not chronologic age, and patients' goals for treatment. So is it beneficial to diagnose DCIS in someone who's 85 years old? even if they're in great health? Probably not. And older women tend to have atrophic breasts that are easy to examine, so you can find lumps when they're at a relatively smaller size. So, for example, in my breast cancer survivors who are over the age of 80, except in unusual circumstances, 
I follow them with physical examination alone. But women in their 70s, there are many exceedingly healthy women in their 70s who are going to live for another 12 to 18 years. And those women will benefit from screening, although they most likely can be screened on an every other year basis because the cancers that they get are less likely to be rapidly growing triple negative interval kind of breast cancers. And then moving into, I mean, say you have a patient to screen mammography, picked up something, and they underwent a, a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. What is your, your protocol for surveillance mammography then? And is it, can they be stopped at the same age you talked about before? And it was an infiltrating ductal carcinoma that was completely excised and treated, I think. Right. So generally, mammography after treatment and how frequently you do it is informed by what the risk of local recurrence is in the index breast and what the risk of new primary breast cancers in the contralateral breast is. And in today's world, the risk of getting an in-breast recurrence for all subtypes of breast cancer is about 5% or less at 10 years. So mammography more often than once a year is not necessary except in high-risk women, meaning those who have deleterious mutations of BRCA1 and BRCA2 who choose to keep their breasts. And in those women, we image them every six months, once with an MRI and once with a mammogram. In older survivors of breast cancer treatment, as I said before, women over the age of 80, I generally stop annual imaging, although I will often get one year after surgery a mammogram to document that the cancer was completely excised and wasn't there before I stop imaging, but that's just a matter of preference, not anything that's based on evidence that it's beneficial. Switching gears a little bit here, there's often when we talk about breast cancer, the discussion about overtreatment uh, with regards to the prophylactic uh, contralateral mastectomy and you know, celebrities getting double mastectomies and what that does to our patients. Kind of two questions here is how pervasive is this problem? And, you know, how do we, any of us going into a general surgery practice, kind of address this issue when there are colleagues out there who are overtreating and and will, you know, succumb to the patient's request for uh, wanting like a bilateral mastectomy due to fear. And then the second question is, what are the indications? So we know that there are genetic indications, but if you can kind of cover it in a little more detail for our residents and listeners out there. Well, first of all, the phrasing of your question implies that you think that prophylactic mastectomy or contralateral prophylactic mastectomy is significantly a doctor problem, and it's not. It's a patient-driven issue. And we know that because back in 2005, we did a study where we looked at a group of women identified through the SEER registry, so a population-based sample of women with state DCIS, stage one and two breast cancer, who we surveyed within six months of their diagnosis. So at a time when they were reasonably likely to remember what they had been thinking. And we asked them who made the treatment decision about what operation they were going to have. Their surgeon? Did they make it as a shared decision with their surgeon, or did they, the patient, make it? And then we looked at how that correlated with the mastectomy rate after adjusting for multiple variables. And it turned out that if the surgeon was identified by the patient as the primary decision maker, the mastectomy rate was 5%. If the decision was shared, it went up to about 16%. And when the patient identified herself as the primary decision maker, it went up to about 26%. Why? fear-driven issue. So what can be done about that? Well, <laughs> this is something that has eluded all of us in the field 
for quite some time. So let's start with what are indications for contralateral prophylactic mastectomy medical indications. And those are, of course, related to risk. So the average woman with a hormone receptor positive breast cancer who receives endocrine therapy has a 10-year risk of developing a second primary breast cancer of 2 to 3% because endocrine therapy cuts in half the risk of new primary breast cancers. Even if you have an ER negative breast cancer because systemic chemotherapy and particularly targeted therapies like anti-HER2 therapies also reduce the risk of second primary breast cancers, that risk is still less than 10%. So since incidence is so low, it's not surprising that studies that have looked at whether or not contralateral prophylactic mastectomy conveys a survival benefit have not found that it does. So when is risk high enough that CPM is medically justified? We know that women who have mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2 have lifetime risks of developing a second primary breast cancer after they've gotten one breast cancer that can be as high as 40 to 60 percent, which is a big risk. And for BRCA1 carriers, we really don't have any effective prevention strategies. So that's a group where no one would argue that risk is high enough to justify CPM. More controversial are the moderate penetrance gene mutations that are increasingly being found with panel genetic testing, where we don't know that the risk of second primary breast cancers is anywhere near as high as it is with BRCA1 and BRCA2. There just isn't enough follow-up to know that, but patients in their head hear gene mutation and immediately extrapolate to, I must need a bilateral mastectomy. So that's a group where it's a much more preference-sensitive um, decision, but benefit is not nearly as clear. Another group where risk is high enough to justify CPM are women who received radiation exposure in infancy, childhood, and adolescence. For example, survivors of uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma who received mantle field irradiation who have a substantial increased risk of bilateral breast cancers. Again, nobody would argue with that. So I think those are the indications everybody would accept. Or family history suggestive of genetic predisposition in the absence of any identifiable mutation. So multiple relatives on the same side of the family who have developed breast cancer, particularly at a young age. Beyond that, then you get into much softer territory where it's much more difficult to say, for example, somebody who has breast cancer at a younger age, has had multiple breast biopsies that show atypia, has breasts that are difficult to image. Is that an appropriate person for CPM? Possibly, but that's not most women who are getting CPM. Most women who are getting CPM have had a minimal number of breast biopsies, don't have breasts that are difficult to image, and aren't necessarily diagnosed at a young age, although contralateral prophylactic mastectomy is much more common in younger women than their older counterparts. Now, as far as what you can do to change that, it is important to not only talk to patients about what their actual risk of second primary breast cancer is, but to make sure they understand that having a CPM is not going to change the outcome of the cancer they already have. Many women believe cancer spreads from breast to breast, so by taking off their other breast, they're reducing their risk of metastases, which of course is not true at all. But beyond that, then we get into the difficulty that we have a society where patient preference is accepted as 
something that is important for medical decision-making and, in fact, a sign of good medical care. One thing we did find in our research is that having the physician clearly state that they do not think that prophylactic mastectomy is medically necessary or medically beneficial in an individual's case does help change the mind of some women who are not firmly set on their course before they walk into your office. But for that patient who has clearly made up her mind that that's what she wants, whether it's because of anxiety or whether it's for cosmetic purposes to make sure that her breasts match as much as she believes is possible, so far success has been limited with trying to change people's minds about that. Well, Dr. Morrow, I have to tell you, we are trying to come up with intelligent uh, questions to ask you um, to kind of keep the conversation going. But your your answers are so in-depth and, and comprehensive that, you know, we're unable to ask any follow-up. So thank you for these, these great reviews. I think it'll be um, very helpful for our residents. And continuing on that, we're going to dive into the tips and tricks where we're going to talk about the, the management of the axilla. Just for our residents out there, that you know they're going to be at their cancer conference and they have a patient that had axillary nodes pre-op, clinical pal- palpable axillary nodes pre-op. Can you discuss what are the options for this patient with a you know a surgically operable breast cancer with palpable clinical nodes? What what options do we have for this patient in 2019? So the first thing about palpable axillary nodes is that all palpable nodes are not cancer. And since as surgeons, we frequently see patients after somebody's been sticking needles in their breast when they have reactive lymphadenopathy, the first thing to do if you have a palpable node is stick a needle in it to make sure that it actually is cancer because that may change your management paradigm. If you have palpable nodes, then there are two choices. One is if you're going to go to the operating room right away, you need to do an axillary dissection. The studies that have shown that axillary dissection can be safely avoided for women with one or two axillary lymph node metastases are the ACASOG Z11 trial, which was in women undergoing breast-conserving therapy, but they had to have a clinically negative axillary exam. The other study, which is perhaps less well-known in this country, is the AMAROS trial, which was done in Europe, which was for women who were having either lumpectomy or mastectomy, and the randomization was to axillary dissection or sentinel node biopsy plus axillary radiotherapy. And the 10-year results of that trial were just reported in December of this year. And again, just like Z11, it shows no benefit to the axillary dissection arm. But just like Z11, that trial was limited to women with a normal clinical exam. So if you have palpable nodes that are biopsy proven to be cancer and you go straight to the operating room, then you need to do an axillary dissection. So the question is, why would you go straight to the operating room in that circumstance? Because patients with nodal metastases are going to get systemic therapy. That's the standard of practice. So the other option is to give those patients systemic therapy first. And if their palpable nodes resolve, then take them to the operating room and do a sentinel node biopsy and see if they have reverted to node negative. And there have now been four prospective studies that have asked the question, is sentinel node biopsy accurate in that circumstance? Somebody who starts out with a positive node and appears to downstage to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And all four of those studies show that the false negative rate of sentinel node biopsy in that circumstance is highly dependent on how many sentinel nodes you retrieve. But if you retrieve three or more sentinel nodes, 
the false negative rate is less than 10%. So how do you retrieve three or more sentinel nodes? Well, first of all, you have to recognize that everybody doesn't have three or more sentinel nodes. The median number of sentinel nodes in most of the clinical trials was two. But how many you find in part depends on how you map. So that we know that dual mapping with a radioactive tracer and blue dye increases the sentinel node yield. We also know that most people who like to map with radioactive tracers pay no attention to what they do with the blue dye. So paying attention, which means injecting the blue dye not up into the skin where it makes a bad skin tattoo, but down into the subareolar space, and then massaging the breast for five minutes by the clock, which is a long time, increases your yield of blue nodes. And using that technique, that combined mapping technique post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy in our patients at Memorial, we retrieve three or more sentinel nodes in close to 90% of them. So most of them do have three or more sentinel nodes. So if three or more sentinel lymph nodes are negative, that will accurately stage your axilla to the standard that we accept for primary surgery. The one thing we don't know at this point in time is what's the axillary recurrence rate after sentinel node biopsy alone in patients who downstage? And we will never know that from those clinical trials because all of them required axillary dissection to establish the false negative rate. But if you look at the parallel circumstance, which is women receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy who start out with clinically negative nodes, many of whom actually have nodal metastases, we do have data there on axillary failure rates, which look very similar to axillary failure rates in patients who have primary surgery. So I think that's the only caveat of what we don't know about that right now, but we and others within the next few years will be reporting outcome data on some patient populations, which will give us a little bit more information about that. Is there a difference in this management uh, after sentinel node biopsy and after neoadjuvant therapy when you get a pathology report saying that there's micromets? Yes, there's a big difference. So when you have a micrometastasis in somebody who's undergoing primary surgery, you know that that means they had a very small amount of cancer in that lymph node. And we know that if they only had micrometastases, that the likelihood of having additional lymph nodes with tumor in the axilla is relatively small in most series, less than 15%. And we don't consider axillary dissection routinely to be necessary for micrometastases found when surgery is performed first. Micrometastasis in somebody who's received neoadjuvant chemotherapy can mean something different. It can mean there was a big hunk of cancer in that lymph node and only part of it died, in which case the residual tumor burden in the axilla may be much higher. And so my colleague, Tracy Mu, actually did a study recently looking at that and found that if you had micrometastases only in the sentinel node after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and had an axillary dissection, the likelihood of other positive nodes in your axilla was 60%, which was exactly the same as the likelihood of having additional positive nodes if you had a macrometastasis in your sentinel node after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and underwent axillary dissection. So I would say right now, the standard of care for micrometastases after neoadjuvant chemotherapy remains axillary dissection. Uh, well, Dr. Morrow, thank you for that. One last question about breast disease before we dive into our final five. In the next 10 years, what question are we going to answer about breast cancer uh, that you're excited to have answered? <laughs> well... I think 
the the question we're going to answer about breast cancer is twofold. One is going to be, or there are two different questions, but they're related to identifying patients who are truly high risk, who require maximal therapy. And that is whether or not liquid biopsies after initial therapy can identify patients who require more therapy because they're destined to relapse or conversely who require less therapy. And similarly, whether or not in patients who have residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy does giving more therapy improve their outcome. We've already started to see the beginning answer to that second question, at least in HER2 overexpressing patients with what's called the Catherine trial, which was a trial looking at HER2 positive patients who had residual disease after neoadjuvant chemotherapy with HER2 blockade and giving them additional TDM1 after surgery and showing a survival improvement. So I think that's likely, but I think those are among the more interesting questions that we're looking at today. I'm not a big fan of the no surgery questions. I think that they are a lot of aggro for gain in a, right now a very, very small population. So those are not on my top list of things we're going to find out. Great. Yeah, it's amazing how much the therapy for breast cancer has changed just in the past 30 years and the outcomes for these patients, you know, to the detriment of our residents who have to keep learning it. But, you know, for the betterment of our patients, it's been quite amazing. <laughs> I wouldn't consider it a detriment that you actually have data as opposed to what the, in many other solid tumor surgeries, you listen to people sitting around saying, well, I always do it this way, which is what they've been saying for the past 30 years. <laughs> that, that is a great point. Uh, so thank you so much for the in-depth in answers. I think our residents are going to really learn a lot from this. Um, we're going to dive into some lighter things now to close out the episode. And these are our final five, just five questions we asked to get to know you a little bit better. Is there someone outside of medicine who has been influential in your life and career? Well, I would have to say that, uh, like most people, my parents were very influential in my life and career in a positive way. I was raised by my father at a time when it was certainly not routinely done to believe that I could do whatever I wanted to do as long as I was willing to work hard enough uh, to do it. So he was very supportive of me going into a career in medicine and surgery at a time when that was not something that was particularly common among women. And I would say my mother, who was also extremely supportive of my career, um, was influential in the sense that her general behavior and ways to treat people taught me a lot about how one would like to be treated. We heard that you like to read to uh, decompress. And so what book are you currently reading and what is your all-time favorite book? <laughs> My all-time favorite book. Well, that's a difficult one. I'm just finishing reading the book Bad Blood, which is fascinating to me because uh, it's a story about uh, how innumerable intelligent people were sort of hoodwinked by the promise of something that had no medical reality whatsoever. And also some frightening things about how our legal system allows people to be bullied and intimidating so they can't come forward uh, when they're trying to basically whistleblow about bad practices. So I'm just about to finish that book, and then I am going to start reading a book about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Have you ever read The Emperor of All Maladies? I have read The Emperor of All Maladies. I enjoyed the book. I found it interesting because there were a variety of people in the book that I knew. Our next one, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what type of music? 
<laughs> yes, I do listen to music in the operating room, um, and it needs to be updated, upbeat music so that people don't start moving more and more slowly. And a favorite operating room music of mine is Motown music. If you were to compete in the Olympics, winter or summer, any event doesn't have to be a sport that you've actually ever played or attempted. Um, what event would you want to do? <laughs> well, now that's an interesting question about competing in something you have absolutely uh, no potential ability to do. <laughs> hmm. Well, it probably wouldn't be gymnastics because I read a fairly horrifying book a long time ago called Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, which was about the training of elite gymnasts, which was very off-putting. So I think it would not be that. I think it would probably be a more uh, traditional sport. Perhaps... Uh, Slalom skiing, something I have absolutely no ability to do. <laughs> Great. What is your favorite vacation spot? Well, one of the good fortunes about a career in academic medicine is that you get to travel a lot. And as I like to say, I have never been anywhere that I regretted going once, although there are many places I have no need to go back to. Uh, and there are a lot of places that I enjoy going for different reasons. I like to go on walking vacations because then nobody can bother me. I can't look at my phone and I can tell people I can't look at my phone. So don't send me any emails. <laughs> walking in the hills of Provence in the springtime when the trees are coming out, the fruit is coming out is a favorite thing. Um, walking through vineyards during the wine harvest is a favorite thing. So I love all those places. I like hanging out in Paris a lot. I think Berlin is a very exciting city. So there's many places I enjoy. So Dr. Morrow, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a very, very excellent episode on breast disease. Great. Thanks for having me. Until next time, dominate the day. 